Talk Season 3 of the Telly Award-Winning Podcast. Coming to you live from the Long Beach Comic Con. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award-Winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjack, Suicide Jockeys, and now Fashang Origins. The other voice in the dark, the man uh, sitting to my right is... David Avalone, uh, writer and day drinker. Love it, love it, love it. If you missed any of our previous conversations, episodes featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, Rodney Barnes, and con panels from San Diego Comic-Con and elsewhere, LA Comic-Con maybe, I don't know if we did one of those yet, uh, but we will. Uh, our entire catalog can be celebrated via uh, YouTube, iTunes, and other purveyors of worthwhile earcracks, so double on back and check it all out. Um, but we are locked and loaded today in Long Beach in the 213, as it were. Um, great show, great panel. That's, I, I didn't yeah. know all, this was all you skirts know what's up with two and three. I don't, I don't yeah. know. So kick us off, Evelyn. So uh, I'd like to introduce our panelists, starting from the end, Mr. Don Walker. Don, tell the kids at home a little bit about yourself. Uh, again, Don Walker. I am the uh, artist, writer of all things Dork Empire Inc., which is my self publishing label with the books. Uh, Dreadlock the Barbarian, out soon. Agent Wild and Rupercore. Very nice. Dr. Koblish. Um, I am Scott Koblish. Uh, I am a cartoonist. I've drawn comic books for uh, Marvel DC. I spent a few years doing Deadpool. Uh, I just started doing my own comic uh, recently with uh, Brian Posehn and Jerry Duggan. Uh, we did uh, Secret History of the War on Weed in April. In October, there's a new book called Halloween Party, which is the same characters generally and a Halloween theme this time out. But uh, we're doing all sorts of stuff for Image over the next year. So I'm looking forward to that. Scott told me earlier today that the entire origin of the book The War on Weed was based on there being an available 420 release date for a comic book. Then <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, there's a Wednesday this past year that was 420. And, and that we, alone, just the existence of that date as a release date, it, I think that's fantastic. It's always a great thing when you get a call from an editor or producer, and it's like, uh, you know, I'm just going to, th- you know, 420, what do you got? You know, yeah. it's like, oh, well. You just yeah. had to. We had to. There was yeah, nothing. There was no way around it. It. It's a great book. It's with, great. Uh, and, it Brian and Brian and Jerry are great, yeah. great guys. And it only happens like once out of every eight years or so. Right. So, you know, right. we, really, we just jumped on it. That's great. So. And Christy? Yeah, uh, my name is Christy Shin. I am self-published through Horror Taurus Studios. I am the creator of Demon Bitch. She's a low-level demon from the 13th pit of hell where people throw their dog shit in gum wrappers. She's based off girls I really friggin' hate. I, I'm, I, that's actually my whole books, but uh, I also am as the president of Comic Art Professional Society. I started my tenure as of February as, the, of, as of this year. Their booth is right behind mine. I am at 412. I already have cards out. And lastly, I have run a Ringo Award in 2018 for my participation in for Best Anthology for Mind Plant Parenthood. Very nice. nice. Very awesome. nice. Talk and roll. So what we're going to talk about here today, and you know, this could be the uplifting and depressing <coughs> panel for you, um, is survival, making a living. How do you do this job and survive? And not go broke. And not, not go broke. Nervous. And you know, I think there is a. I know that these are all inaccurate, but I looked up my net worth once. You ever do that? The net worth thing on the internet? No. And, you can. <laughs> and yeah. 
And I was listed as uh, having $1.5 million. Whoa! I, 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 looked, I looked at my wife and I uh, two months ago, and what were we, like $11 million each? And which is insane. The, the basis that this web, and I, you know, these, these websites aren't, this is a bot. It's not based on anything real. But it said author income. And I was like, you guys do not know what dynamite pays a page, do you? Because uh, that I am a thousandaire uh, on a lucky month. And uh, you know, there's the, the overall balance. If you want a life in the arts, the balance is freedom versus uh, freedom versus money. You can work for people and have a little bit of freedom or a lot of freedom if you make a really good deal, or you can work for yourself and have all the freedom in the world and be broke. And there are ways to make money working for yourself, and there are ways to have freedom working for big companies. But ultimately, you're always sort of walking that tightrope of, am I paying the rent, or am I doing the thing that I love, and can I kind of sort of do them both? And uh, why don't I start with Don. Don, how do you keep body and soul together and make comic books? Oh, gosh. Uh, out of the panel here, I'm probably the outlier in that I don't make a living making comics. <laughs> I have a, a wife who has an awesome job and allows me to do this. Um, I'm that kind of artist where I don't take outside gigs that I'm not interested in. Hmm. I'm not the hired gun kind of artist. You can't come at me and go, here's money, draw my book. If I don't care and like the project or people I'm working with, I don't do it because mm -hmm. it's soul crushing. Like I love drawing and writing my own books. That's the most fun ever I've ever had. Doing other people's stuff is just like, it takes me forever. I don't really want to do them. I, I, I get offers all the time, oh, nice. which is awesome. I actually got an offer in December for a uh, one-shot for an indie rock band, and I was busy. It sounded really cool, but I was busy. And like, do my own thing. Hmm. So I was like, I could do my own thing, have fun, or go do this paid gig. I'm like, I don't do my own thing. And now I'm kind of, now I'm kind of mad I didn't do it, because I went off and did it with somebody else, and like, I had all these good ideas to write and draw this book, hmm. and I, now I can't do it. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, if I don't, if I don't feel connected to the project somehow mm -hmm. or the people, my work suffers. Sure. You know, uh, it, it goes slower. Sure. I'm miserable. The clients usually don't know that I'm suffering or the work suffering, but I know. Yeah. yeah. And that's bad enough for me. If I'm doing a 75% a job on something as opposed to 100, then I, I'm affected mentally by it. I, so I don't do them often. Yeah. Which is why I don't make a living comics. <laughs> I, I, I think you're you're probably less of an outlier than you think. Okay. In terms of at least in terms of the industry writ large, uh, I always think a lot of creators present. We all want to present ourselves positively. We always we all want to seem fabulous and successful. But like I have health insurance because my wife is an IATSE costume maker. I, if, if we were relying on my writing for either of us to be able to see a doctor, forget it. That's not going to happen. Mm. Uh, so if not for uh, Local 705, 
Uh, my wife's work can be seen on Loki and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Nice. She's done nice. a lot of great work. Uh, Star Trek Picard season three. She's currently working on a uh, Jason Momoa project, where, which is about the unifications of the tribes of Hawaii. Guess what? None of those costumes exist. They all have to be made. Yeah. 18th century Hawaiian costume is not a thing that you can go to the store and buy. But point being, I think a lot of people, and certainly a lot of people in the arts, maybe they make a living now. But at some point, there might have been a spouse or a parent who paid the rent, who was the person who had health insurance, who was the person who had the car that worked. You know, so I think it's, I, I think we should be honest, particularly with people who want to do this for a living, about how challenging it is. <clears throat> and how you, you know, like my, I'm at a pretty good point now in my writing career. I have a lot of work. I have more work than I can actually do, which is nothing I will ever complain about from all of the like first 10 minutes of Apocalypse Now times of staring at the walls waiting for a mission, you know, punching the mirror, empty bottle of whiskey. Um, but those times right now are past and that's good. But I wouldn't have gotten here some months it was me paying the rent and my wife having no income because that's a, that's a freelance job too. And sometimes it was her paying the rent and me contributing, I uh, got $500 for that eight, for that 20 page comic book this month, you know? So it's, that's, that's the challenge. And I, like I said, I think it's good to be honest with people coming up about how you got where you are and what you had to go through to get here. Well, yeah. Because it's not easy. Yeah, and I also think, I, I, I mean, I think Don is, is hitting on another really interesting part of this. I mean, we, we, you know, this was advertised as the, well, you know, I mean, how, how do we make money? How do we pay the bills? How do we survive? But you know, Don brings up the other side of that coin, where it's like, okay, well, how do we, how do we stay fulfilled and engaged and inspired? And I mean, I, I actually had to, I had to get into comics for that reason. I was, uh, I, I, my, my day job, quote unquote, is I'm a, a screenwriter. I write uh, uh, movies and TV shows, and you know, that that work has its own. I mean, you know, uh, you know, sometimes you have a lot of work. Then sometimes there are long stretches where you have no work, <laughs> you know. Sometimes you get paid in a big lump sum, and you got all this money, and you don't know if it needs to last you a month or if it needs to last you three years <laughs> or a decade. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And so, 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 so that is really interesting. But um, I mean, here's the thing: is so I, I, I was a, I was a a child of the 90s, right? I grew up during the Sundance movement. I saw Pulp Fiction and I said, I want to do that. And I moved out to Los Angeles and I, I went to AFI and I got my snooty director's education. And by the time I got spit out into the film business, Hollywood stopped making those films, you know? Uh, um, all of that stuff kind of moved down to television and mutated and that ended up being a different dance and I already kind of had this foothold in the, in, in the, the, the movie writing business. Um, and, and it just got to the point where it's like, well, okay, well, Hollywood makes five different kinds of films right now. They want them all written a certain way. Um, and that's what you do. And if you try to do anything else, then, you know, go, go find a different job. <laughs> you know, that, that, that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm decent at writing those movies, you know. Uh, uh, they've, they, they've, they've, you know, kept me, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in rents and, and clothes for, uh, for the most part. Um, uh, but... You know, I was not like Don. I was not feeling like enriched and challenged, and and you know, I did not have the soul food. And and you know, I think it was there was this crisis. Uh, I don't know. I, I had maybe ten or twelve years of, of writing professionally in Hollywood, and I'm like, man, I don't. I hate to be the the guy. I sound like an idiot complaining about getting to write movies and stuff like that. But 
I was like, I don't know if I can do this for another 10 or 12 years. Like, I, I feel dead inside <laughs> to, to a lot. But the beauty of comics is that you can kind of tell any kind of story you want to. You can tell it any sort of way, um, and, uh, as long as it's good, as long as, as you're putting yourself into it, you, you will find an audience for it, right? Particularly now with Kickstarter and all of these other things. Um, so, so what you're talking about, Don, like having to find that soul food, like uh, in order to keep going, it, it was weird because writing movies, like anybody else's dream job became my like, you know, punching the, the cash register at, 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 uh, at Walmart or whatever. And it was comics that was, it was my passion. It was the thing I was doing on the side that was feeding my soul and comics saved my creative life. It, it, it made me love writing and creating again. And so I think that that's, I, I think we're talking about two different things right now. Uh, I mean, they're, they're two related things. And so, yeah. so, so when, we, when we hear from you guys, let's, let's hear about the dollars and cents, but let's hear about the soul food, the inspiration, all that stuff. I think this is a great point. What's, what's your path, Scott? How did you end up where you are? Uh, boy, how did I wind up here? Um, I, I guess when I was about seven, I decided what I was going to do. And then uh, years later, I had a child and then uh, would be around seven-year-olds. And I would never take career advice from a seven-year-old. <laughs> but I took career advice from myself at the age yeah. seven. I decided I was going to be a comic book artist. And then I was lucky enough, I had, we lived, I lived in New Jersey, the wilds of New Jersey. And um, <clears throat> my, uh, uh, there was a school that had opened up, the Joe Kubert School, oh. Oh, that okay. uh, had opened up, like, I guess when I was seven or eight. My mom... Uh, in a weird kind of way, like knew that there were people that did comic books because um, her older brother uh, had a friend who colored comic books. Uh, his name was Bob Sharon. And I didn't really piece that one together, but uh, my mom was like, you know, I think that's a job. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause no, I was, and there are a lot of parents that, would that wouldn't. Go, yeah, they no, would have no idea. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they were no. like, I think that's a job. And uh, robots in Micronesia make comic books. Yeah, that's, that's widely known. Absolutely. And then my my uh, because the Kubert School had opened up, there was these Saturday classes uh, from nine to twelve that Joe Kubert would teach, and uh, he was like, this is definitely a job. So I was like, oh, okay, great. This is a job that I can do. And then uh, he, he was teaching the classes, but he really uh, beat the fanboy out of me. Right. So like he would say, like, what comics do you like? And I would say, oh, I love these George Perez and John Byrne comics. And you'd go, those guys don't know how to draw at all. <laughs> and he would say, what you really want to look at is... Uh, Russ Heath. Windsor, no, Russ Heath. So Russ Heath and, and, and Joe are contemporaries. Yeah. So that's not, you never look at the guy next to you and right, idolize your right, contemporaries. Right, so sure. for us, Russ Heath, because yeah. who drew tanks better no than one. Russ Heath? No, no one. one. And actually, so I have a Russ Heath, Joe Kubert story. Sure. But I, I'll try to make it quick. Okay. So uh, Joe, when I'm, when I'm learning from him, he says, you know, the composition is very important, the way that you're designing everything. No one's really going to, you want to have reference, but nobody's really going to like look at a World War II biplane and say, that's not what it looks like exactly, right? So Joe was like, get the spirit of it, get the whole thing. And years later, I'm stuck in some room and Russ Heath is next to me. 
And I say, oh, well, what you want to do is get the gener general you know, sense of this thing together. And Russ goes, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, you have to get this thing exactly right, or why are you doing it at all? Yeah, for, for those you that know, don't know, Russ Heath drew the most photorealistic comics in the history of comics. But a lot of energy and a lot oh, of Oh, they're uh, great comics. They're so, not, yeah. I don't mean to imply they're flat yeah. at all, but... His comics literally look, people always compare the two mediums. His comics look like someone filmed them and you're looking yeah, at the page exactly. in individual frames. So I wound up accidentally in the same argument <laughs> yeah, you know, right. years <laughs> later. But at any rate, I, 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 I learned from Joe. He would show me all the people that he admired and then uh, really just took, took it out of my head that it was something that uh, I enjoyed and made it something that I worked at. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like he was like, this is your career, this is your job, it is the loneliest job that anyone will ever have because you are most likely 90% of the time spending alone, your time alone, except for conventions like yeah, this. Yeah, it's why we come here. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that is kind of why we come here. And um, and basically, what he what he did was just sort of say that this is a job for you know for me at, at age seven or eight nine. That this is a job, and this is how you you wake up every day and you do this job. So for me, it's just been 45 years of waking up every day and drawing. You know, and I, as a kid, I loved drawing anyway. So I would draw at like 4 a.m. Like I would pretend to go to sleep, and then I would sneak into. Uh, I had my desk in a closet, and I could I could put the door closet door so my parents couldn't see that I was hiding there. You know. And I would just draw until 4 a.m. It's very good and training then, for being a professional comic Yeah, artist. and I didn't know that at the time, <laughs> that I would be drawing at 4 a.m. for the rest of my life. Yeah. But, yeah. So that's, that's, it was beat into my head that this is a job and this is the way to do it. And it helped me uh, years later because inspiration is a tricky thing. Uh, inspiration will come to you, but it will come to you on its own terms. Yeah. But if you're not there waiting for it, it won't, it'll go to somebody else. You know, it'll point. it'll travel around the world and hit you. If you're if you're there and actively drawing, it'll hit you. But if it if you're not, then it'll skip to the next person. So. Yeah, yeah. Christy, I, I, I was gonna say I really like this idea that you know it is a job. This is work. This yeah. this is like in in nine, in yeah. ninety percent of the ways it is you know, hitting those buttons on the cash register at Walmart, it is it is the same thing. And, it can and, be, and, yeah. and, and there are, you know, I mean, the the, ten, the other 10% is very different, and and it is a gift to that our 10% is this 10%, instead of some other 10% that maybe wouldn't be as fulfilling. Well, and that 10% is so fulfilling. Yeah, like, yeah. it, it, right. it yeah. rises you up so high yeah, that yeah. those moments where you're excited about the project... Yeah are the things that'll get you through the 90 percent of the rest of it. Yeah, but you know but, but I mean? yeah, like, yeah, but if you do not come in, if you, if you think this is one big party, it's one big right. art party or film party or whatever no. party, you know, your dream job is going to be work. It's going to be coming in and and you know and, and picking up that till and turning over soil and turning yeah. over soil and turning over soil. It is hours and hours of work and repetition and and I think if you're not ready for that, you know, then that it can be, it can it can shatter you, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean I don't mean to make it so sound so appealing. <laughs> but it is it is work, you know, yeah. and it can be uh, difficult, and uh, especially with art, it's subjective. So you're pleasing your own subjective self. 
your, as well as trying to entice other people to enjoy the thing that you're doing as well. But that's always tricky. You just never know what's going to excite somebody when they see your artwork. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a it's a tricky business. It's 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 art, you know. So there is that subjective angle, but it's also business. So there's that that objective angle. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's just sort of merging the two. You see everybody struggle with it. Some people uh, are way better at it than other people. Like, uh, some people mix it together pretty well. I had a number of great teachers. Uh, Will Eisner was one. Will was very good at the business end aspect, uh, but also great at the cartooning. Um, he, he had that ability to mix the two together. But I would meet people who would struggle with the business end and uh, were just amazing artists, you know. And, um, and vice versa, you meet some people where you your initial thing is this art is terrible, but they're successful. They do really well with their business angle. So I think that there are, there are a number of hats that people are comfortable putting on that you just have to kind of go with your strengths. When I was a kid and when I learned about like businesses for film or for cartooning or whatever it is, you know, anything in the arts, you, you have a general idea of what you want but then you find out that, oh, there's this job that uh, uh, making costumes for, for Hawaiian stuff. Like, I'm really good at that, and they really need that job. Yeah. And, it, and that's my place, you know? And then so you, you find these things where you have a dream of being in the thing, but you have to find your place within it. So, yeah. um, you know, it, it's, it's not a failure to sort of find your place. Your place is going to be your place, and you're going to inspire somebody else later on, or you're going to work with somebody who goes, "Well, I worked on these great like like costumes in Hawaii, and then like 30 years from now in 2050, there's going to be a show. I guarantee you that's going to be all about Hawaiian stuff, and they're going to go, you know, who really did it really right. well, you know? Well, so the, yeah, you never and you you absolutely the part of the, the loneliness is. And one of the reasons we come to cons is you have no idea what effect you're having on an audience. Yeah. You have no idea, like it's, you know, you, a lot of, especially in comics, a lot of your best work will go unseen, unreviewed, unnoticed, like that's just a thing you have to get used to. And you have to go looking for what the audience thought of it. Yeah. That uh, loneliness is the future. Yeah. It's the thing that hasn't happened yet. They haven't watched it yet. They haven't seen the film. They haven't seen the project. And you're not going to ever engage with the audience in the level that you're working on it. You're going to engage with them having they read it. And right. they come back to you years later, sometimes decades later, and say, I really loved this thing. I signed a comic from like 1994 today. That's almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but they liked that thing. They kept it. They read it. They kept it. And then they gave it back to me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. For me oh, to yeah. see. I was, I was so. at New York City, New York Comic Con in 94, and some young man overheard me mention writing for the VR Troopers. Oh, wow. Okay, and he sure. went, you're over, you're over for the VR Troopers? I'm like, yeah, nobody watched that show. He's like, it was my favorite show. <laughs> what episodes did you write? And I named the titles. And he's like, oh, those are such good episodes. I'm like, you know the title names of the VR troopers. How yeah. is that even possible? Yeah. Uh, but he did. And Christy, tell us your, yeah. your path to this. No, no, I was just like kind of <coughs> laughing. And it wasn't like out of mockery to anybody else. It's just 
my life has been so weird and different that it's like everybody that anybody told me to do that I tried to do right, that totally didn't work for me. So uh, that's why I was like kind of chuckling, like, oh my God, like, I don't know if I tell my story, it's going to be weirdly self-aggrandizing or whatever. But sure. it's like everything that people told me to do to do the right thing, I did. And it, it totally fucked up for me. So it's like, well, that didn't work. So um, what it was is that I grew up, as you can tell, I'm Asian, two Korean parents that immigrated over here. My mom has a like, what is it, um, a master's in physical organic chemistry. My dad built nuclear reactors. So, so the arts. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, uh, it was arts. strong background in the arts. Struggling yeah. artists. Yeah, yeah, my sister does web, web traffic and finance. So oh, it, yeah. everybody thinks like, oh, so like you have parents that are good in math. So that was great, huh? And I'm like, no, they think I, I thought I was fucking defective because I wasn't good at math. Right. So anyway, so the thing is, is that I grew up and, you know, the Asian thing is to take your kid to like Stanford or Ivy League just to put in your head, you should be here. You should be here, like UCLA, something, right? So my parents, we lived in North in Northern California, so we would go to Stanford. So we'd go to Stanford and shit. <laughs> and then of course I wanted to read. And they were totally cool. Like I just read everything in the world. The thing is that in a college bookstore they had these things called underground comics, so I started reading those. <laughs> so I got life in hell when wow, I was. Wow, talk uh, about backfiring. Yeah. yeah. We're gonna take you to Stanford and you're gonna be pre-med and you read underground comics. They wanted me a doctor or a lawyer. Like, my mom said that, yeah. like, at one point. And, uh, and uh, so I ended up doing that. And what was really hilarious was is that, so I started drawing comics. Um, I got manga, which is Japanese, and manhwa, which is Korean. So those are the difference between the two. And if anybody knows, like, the modern-day Korean comics, they're, like, kind of pretty, and they had those. But they also had a lot of hydrocephalic-looking characters. So if you look at old-style manhwa, you'll know what I mean, like probably from the 70s to the 80s. And uh, when you look at Demon Bitch, you'll kind of see that. You'll kind of see that. I just looked at it. I'm like, oh, gee, geez. But um, the thing is, is I try to do all the right things. It's like, OK, I'll go to UC Santa Barbara. I'll go and double major. I double majored in film and art. I was trying to minor in Japanese, and then my head exploded. I'm not good at additional languages at all. It really sucks. And then. Um, then I went through the frustrating phase of where I had to be professional and never fucking swear, always dress professionally, all this other stuff. And I did. It wasn't like I didn't know how. My mom was the top 5% seller of real estate in Silicon Valley. Like, she's successful. So I had very successful people telling me ways how to succeed, yeah. and I'm doing them, and I'm failing miserably. And they said, well, it must be something you're doing. Like, I don't understand your work so good. So this is not me self-aggrandizing myself. Well, you don't know how to sell yourself. I'm like, and I wanted to throw shit at the wall. I mean, I did everything like work a practical job, work a shit job, work on my art, work a practical job, work on my art. And it was a lot of grinding for the past 11 years. And one day I just said, fuck it. And I just said, I'll just do shit for myself. And it was hard. I'm not going to lie. Like, there's lots of days when you're broke. There's lots of days when people are crapping on you all ever, like your parents, everything else, and everybody's asking, well, like even asking professionals, what am I doing wrong? And they said, oh, you should just quit. Fuck you guys, by the way. Um, and the thing is, is that when I just simply said, screw this, I'm just going to do what I love and do what I do, then that's when it started taking off for me. And it's weird because like people that I read when I was younger, I'm not going to tell you how old I am because you'd be surprised. Uh, <laughs> but I read stuff like Dawn. I read stuff like Dawn's kind of underground, I would say, underground indie. Indie now. And then I would read Love and Rockets by the Hernandez brothers and just all these fucked up comics. 
and I just embraced that. And now I'm like the president of CAPS. Now I run Demon Bitch, which now has over 11,000 views last time I looked at it. That's awesome. Yeah, and it was just me just putting it out there. And now I'm the president of CAPS, and I have to laugh my ass off because I'm like, wow, I did everything opposite than what everybody was fucking telling me. And it wasn't like I was hard to work with. Like, I worked with other people, but it never took off. Then I realized, like, and I wasn't, I'm not trying to say, like, don't ever improve your artwork. Don't ever listen to critiques, okay? I'm not saying that to you guys. Don't ever give the finger to the head of Marvel or something. You don't own me type thing. Don't do that. I never did that. I mean, don't be an asshole. But um, I just realized, at least for me, that my work was so different that people didn't understand it or didn't know how to quite take it until I learned how to market it in my own way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you need to do that. And again, you don't need to be a rude dick about everything. I mean, I wasn't, but I just realized that about myself once I started going down. It's like, well, everything else failed. Might as well do this. And it worked out for me. And it's just like, I embraced fully what I am. Like, I always kind of knew I was sort of, would be in underground comics, but I didn't know how big underground comics were a thing. Like, I laugh at all things offensive. I mean, look at life in hell. Like, I, I don't know if he draws it anymore, but I know he's graduated The Simpsons and Futurama and all these other guys, but it's just like that was the first thing that I started in, was that. Then I, like, really got into Dawn, then I got really into Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, then I got into Love and Rockets, and then it kind of went on from there. I mean, right now, I think one of my favorite underground artists is Johnny Ryan, and he draws the most disgusting things ever, so don't ever have your kids look at it. But uh, he's constantly banned off Instagram. But his stuff just like, it's so gross and absurd, but you look at it and you start laughing because on some level it's true. Or it's just tweaking your bobble just a little bit to make you laugh. But I guess that's just what my art form I do. But I'm not saying that none of everybody else is right. I'm just saying figure it out yourselves because sometimes you'll have to. Yeah. And um, I mean, that's the thing about any career in the arts is anyone that tells you that there's a front door or there's a path is lying to you. There is no one way. There are yeah. things that have worked. Like, there's the generation before us of comics pros, a lot of them were like editorial assistants at the big two. You know, that's, I don't know that that's a path that even exists anymore. Yeah. That you can go be like, and some of them, there's some comics writers from like the 90s that literally got attention because they would write letters to comics in the 80s. Yeah. You know, you go back and read comics from the 70s or 80s, you're like, oh, there's a letter in here from Kurt Busiek. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's how he got people to notice him. He wrote really smart letters. Who do we have on the show that got in that way? I can't remember, yeah, but it, yeah, but the point is there's... 40 episodes ago. There is literally no right way except the one that works for you. I started in comics at the age of 49. I had worked in movies since the year, since 1986. I'm also, I hope, older than I look. And, um, and I was burning out. And a colleague of mine read an old script of mine and said, you know, I can't help your film career, but you could probably get a gig writing comic books. And she introduced me to some editors at conventions. And one of them said, yeah, I'll give you a shot. And I wrote a five-issue series for Dynamite, and they've employed me pretty much nonstop since 2014, since I wrote the first series for them. Uh, and, you know, I, they like what I do, apparently, so I keep doing it, and now I've been hired out to other companies. And of course, ironically, after not being able to get arrested as a film writer, I mean, literally my last credit was the VR Troopers in 1994. Um, the best film work I've ever gotten came off of being a comic book writer. 
Like, who, you're 30 years in independent film? Screw you, that's, good. that's bullshit, nobody. Oh, you write comics for $30 a page for Dynamite? You should help us develop the Red Sonja movie. Yeah. And that's a, true, that's a true story. I helped develop the Red Sonja movie. And, but it's like, at the time, my page rate in comics was garbage. But like, I'm driving onto the Paramount lot and going to a writer's room and going, what? This comes from writing legendary Vampirella? Like, yeah. really? That's, okay. And, and now I'm working on uh, Bat Wheels for Warner Brothers Animation. And again, could I have gotten that without the comic books if I had continued to just make indie movies nobody saw? Probably not. You know, so it's, there, the, there is no straight path. The paths are always winding. I, I do want to tell one quick <clears throat> anecdote from my father's life and career about what you know, the whole thing of like money versus passion. My dad was a novelist for, from 1953 till the late 80s. And he was very much, it was the same thing that Scott had. I got, I grew up with an artist who woke up in the morning, had a cup of coffee, sat at a typewriter and worked eight hours. Like most writers don't actually take it that seriously as a job. My dad, it was a job. And he wrote things that he loved that meant a lot to him, series of private eye novels. But he also took work for paying the mortgage. And the last, he did novelizations of movies. He did Beneath the Planet of the Apes, for example, which is a great, book's much better than the movie. But the last novelization he did was Friday the 13th, part three. Wow. I think he got that after Cannonball Run. <laughs> and uh, Friday the 13th, part three, he, it came in the mail, and he said, could you read it first? Because, oh, shit, it's going to be so bad. And I read it, and I said, yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's garbage. <laughs> Friday the 13th, part three, I always tell people, yes, he wrote it in 3D. Uh, so I give him the script. I say, yeah, it's terrible. I don't know what to tell you. And he went into his office with the script, silence, silence, silence. About an hour later, I hear the typing. And I swear to God, two hours after that, he comes up with pages in his hands. He says, I'm doing something with, uh, with uh, Jason here on page five. It's really great. And I was like, you son of a... You already love it. Like, yeah. you, you're already excited to write your adaptation of this terrible script. Jason's inner monologue. He, yeah. Right, exactly. No. He's like, no, I found, no, no, no. I found something to do with Jason. It's uh -huh. really, really great. And I have always remembered that. Yeah. Whenever someone suggests, you know, a thing that I don't want to work on, I think, is there a way... Yeah, I did I that can... the other day with a... So I, I, I'm working on a book that... It's our book now. Like, it's yeah. Brian Bussain and Jerry Duggan. And then what happens is Brian and Jerry are busy. So, like, sometimes I'm just like, I've got to figure out what how this story ends. Do you know what I mean? So, like, there was there were a whole bunch of monsters, and they're fighting, and I was, like, talking it over with my wife, and I was like, you know, I really want to... I, I I've got every monster here, I think. And then she's like, well, do you have the Invisible Man? And I was like, I don't have the Invisible Man. And you know who's easy I, to draw. And you know who's easy to Well, and I thought it would be great. I can have the main character fight the Invisible Man for a little bit. So it's just like it's him like swinging at the Invisible Man. And then I was like, well, how do we take out the Invisible Man? And, and she was like, well, this guy's kind of a, a douche, right? And I was like, yes body spray so like you know we just have him like light some body spray at the invisible man you know what i mean but it's just like it's stuff like that where you're like you're just kind of like random thoughts you know what i mean like 
and then you just come back with it later. Sometimes I'll just show things to people. I'm like, okay, I got to draw that. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I um, you know, so I mean, I, I came into the film business, and and you know, I still had kind of snooty, you know, indie filmmaker stink on me. Just came out of AFI, and <laughs> I, I'd written this like uber indie, like you know, visceral script that broke me as a writer. Yeah. And that gets me signed at CAA. You know, the, I, I'm suddenly I'm a stormtrooper on the Death Star. And like the jobs I'm going out for and, and in the mix for are like White Noise Three and you know uh, uh, the there was a White Noise Two the uh, the, the, the Hitcher <laughs> remake and, and all of these Barely things you know and and, I, and I'm um, you know I I was like you know I don't I don't have anything you know I don't want to write White Noise Three you know yeah, like yeah. and and you know here's the thing if I had written White Noise Three and and the Hitcher remake back then you know I would be in a much better place right now <laughs> uh, 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 career wise. Um, but you know, but I was a little snooty about it, and so you know, so I, how I broke was this this snooty script that I wrote. It won the final draft competition. One of the they had this partnership with Sid Field at the time, okay. and one of my prizes was I got this, I got like a sit down with Sid Field, which and I, and I was in L.A. and so I got to drive up to Sid's house in the hills, and his wife made me like, you know, this coffee they had flown in from Kenya or something like that, <laughs> and we're sitting out you know back behind his pool. And, and 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 I'm you know and, I, and I'm telling him this oh, I don't want a white noise white noise three you know I'm an artist and blah 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 and he's like kid come on man you know he's he, he's he's like just let loose he's like you know you're you're he's like you're gonna get paid to write you're gonna get paid to create you know and yeah. and, and and how he broke it down for me is like like you know everything is kind of a means to an end he's like do one for them and then that allows you to do one for you you mm. know you you write white noise three and then and then they let you do whatever the hell you want and you take your shot there. And maybe you hit a home run, and then you can do whatever you want for the rest of your life. Right. Um, uh, you know, m m maybe maybe you don't hit, m maybe you foul one off, and you got to write, you know, White Noise Four. Yeah, White Noise Four. Yeah. But but then you get another shot, and 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 that made perfect sense to me. And, and and here's the thing: is like I can't. I have this. I have that thing inside of me all the time now. I I remember, you know, you. I mean, I write a couple of comics that that do all right, and then you start to have the conversations with all the publishers, and they start bringing you stuff, and and um, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to write that, you know? I, don't, I, 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 I what do I have to say with that? What do I have to say with that? And so I start looking at these jobs, and I'm like, well, well, who do I know that does this sort of sort of work? Oh, you know, my my business partner. <laughs> let me let me grab a big stack of Avalonis comics, and you know, because how how would I write Elvira? I don't I don't know Elvira. I don't. And, 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 and I get like three issues into Avalone's run on Elvira, and I'm like, this guy is having the time of his life. <laughs> like, this is funny, and this is awesome, and it's Thank Elvira, you. but it is also like as Avalonia thing as I have ever read. And I just saw it. I'm like, I'm like, you can, you can, you can find what you love in anything. You can yeah. make anything and everything you. And um, I, I will say there are exceptions. Yeah. There, uh, <laughs> the, the Elvira has the same. Um, representation as a certain other famous pretty person who I have met personally and worked with and when they said can you do Dita Von Teese comics I thought about it for a day and said no <laughs> I cannot make her more interesting than she is and pick not, your battles yeah. she is she is not no and, and I'll tell you though in terms of like Elvira I said maybe yeah because I had just done Betty Page and I was like I don't want this to be my niche 
trying to turn beauty symbols into, you know, <laughs> feminist comic book characters does not seem, that's a, that's a big lift. And it was actually my, I didn't know that both my wife and the artist that I've principally worked with at the time, Dave Acosta, were Elvira super fans. Oh, really? So oh, from so both angles, I was getting, yeah. no, you're taking this job so that we can meet her and talk to her and be her best friend. And, uh, but Acosta, the artist, saved my life. He sent me comedy, celebrity comedy comics from the 50s. There were Bob Hope comics. Mm. There were Jerry Lewis comics. And he said, you're thinking of this as like, what horror stories can I tell with Elvira? That is not the question. Right. The question is, how funny can I be? Mm, this is a comedy book with a horror background. It's not a horror book that is funny. Yeah. So Dave sent me all this, like he sent me Angel and the Ape. And he mm. said, this is the, Mad Magazine is what we're doing here. We're not doing Constantine with jokes. Yeah, yeah. Like it's yeah. not, nice. so yeah. that defined it in a way that I myself hadn't defined it. I was just kind of like, oh, I gotta, yeah, it's more I, gotta, I gotta come up with a horror thing. And he was like, no, this is Bob Hope breaking the fourth wall. And going, hey folks, how you doing? You know, like that's the, the voice. Yeah. And yeah. she's got a, she's also got a great voice that's very, incredibly easy to write in, actually. She actually said, we had dinner a few a few months ago, and she said, you know, like, you're the first, she's like, I was so sure you were gay. And I said, why? She's like, only gay men can write me. <laughs> and I said, well, to me, it's not a gay thing. It's a, you talk like a 75-year-old Jewish yeah. uh, borscht belt comic. I'm writing Mel Brooks with boobs. I'm not writing, <laughs> you know, like, that's the character as I see it. And she's like, well, that seems to be working for you. So, But it is, you know, you dig in, and sometimes there are things, you know, for me, Dita Von Teese was like, that's a bridge too far. There's literally nothing interesting about her. So I, I, I can't do it. Um, but with Betty, the same thing. I listened to a, I watched a documentary that was largely narrated from an old interview with Betty Page. And listening to her actual voice tell the story of her life, I went, this is a fascinating woman. And that, I can, I can approximate that. Yeah. You know, now that I've heard it, but in the abstract, I was like, eh, she's a fetish model from the 50s. What do I have to say about spanky, that? Spanky, spanky, yeah. Yeah, but there was, it turns out there was a lot to say about that. You I know? think that in, like, sort of, tying it all in is that the the passion that you feel about something is not something that you'll ever really understand until it uh, encounters you. Mm. So what'll happen is that there's characters that I love and then when I get to draw them it goes horribly wrong like nothing works but mm. then there's characters that I have no conception of whatsoever and haven't paid any attention to which is what, how Deadpool happened for me. I hadn't really thought about the character at all. And they asked me if I wanted to do like a fill-in. And I said, no, I'm busy. <laughs> and then like I heard an interview with the writers like two or three days later on a podcast. And I was like, oh, they're fun. And I was like, I'll just, I'll was call them Was that Jerry? Up. Yeah, it was Jerry Duggan yeah. and Brian Posehn. And I'm great. such a huge comedy nerd that I sure. knew who Brian was. Sure. And I was like, well, I would love to, Maybe I'll just give this a try. I called back and I was like, is this still available? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, great, let's do it. And then I realized like while I was working on it, I was like, oh, we can do all sorts of things here yeah. that I didn't expect. Yeah. And you can't break that character. 
Like Superman turning to the audience and starting to talk to the audience, <laughs> that's it. You've ruined Superman. Like you can't, you can't have to see that come out. Right. But Deadpool turning to the audience and addressing the audience directly, dressing them down, trying to talk to them about like some serious issues about like why are you laughing at this? That's something yeah. that literally can make a, a story like much more interesting on a number of different levels. So now levels. I'm totally going to pitch you DC know. as Superman, Ferris Bueller <clears> thing. <throat> but they have characters that. that work in that level, yeah. like a Harley Quinn or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's almost like... Uh, um, but Harley Quinn wasn't always that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It just became that. Mm -hmm. Someone wanted to do a Deadpool book, really. Yeah. And they, hadn't, they had that editor's phone number. Right. instead of the other editor's phone number. Right. So, because they wanted to do that thing with their book. Like like, like you wanting to do your own thing, like, or you wanting to do your thing. Like, mm -hmm. it's something that, like, only you can do, mm -hmm. you know? But you don't know it speaking, <laughs> until speaking you're of, there. Speaking of comedy, there's something, uh, there's something Patton Oswalt said about Twitter that I always think about, and I think it applies across all the arts. He said that Twitter has made a lot of us better comics, and here's why. There is a there is a low-hanging fruit joke about everything that happens in current events. Yeah. And if if not for the fact that every like, and he said I made Patton was like I made some low-hanging joke about something that had happened in current events, and like everybody told me, oh, like the Sparklets guy made that joke five minutes ago. Like everybody could have made that joke. You, it makes you approach every single situation and go. What's the David Avalone yeah. only joke? What's yeah. the joke no one else will tell about this thing? What's the take on this material that no one else will have? And some of it you don't have to strain for. Some of it is very like obvious and logical and it comes to but sometimes you do have to go like, no, I can't do that. Everyone's gonna do that. I can't no, that's ooh, that's really obvious. Everyone's gonna see that one coming from a million miles away. And I think one of the basic questions we ask, are, are ask ourselves, if you take this work seriously at all, any work in the arts, you always ask yourself, what is no one, what has everyone else done and what is no one else gonna do? Uh, Bo Smith, who created Winona Earp, I saw an interview with him once and someone asked him if uh, <coughs> Winona was like his attempt to do something feminist, why did he make the descendant of Wyatt Earp a woman? And he said, well, sure, it works on that level, and that's fine, but I did it because anyone else doing a story about the descendant of White Oak would make him a, du a dude with yeah. a mustache. Like, mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the dumb thing everyone's going to do. Making it kind of a batshit chick is something no one's going to do, so I'll do that. You know. But anyway, we should, we should wrap it up. We, should wrap we up. usually wrap up with uh, where can people find you and where can they find your work. Let's start with Don. Uh, so here I'm at C1, Narcelli. Uh, and online, you can find my, my work, uh, dorkempireinc.bigcartel.com. That's my sales site for all things Dork Empire Inc. and my work. Uh, Don's got some great stuff. You should check it out. Um, I am over in Artist Alley. Uh, I'm at A12. And so come by, uh, I can do sketches for you. Um, my most recent comic book that'll be coming out is called Halloween Party and that comes out on October 12th. It is a monster comic, uh, but 
as with everything else, there's some weird thing that makes it almost not a monster comic. So I don't, I can't describe it. You'll just have to buy it. Christy? Yeah, um, I will be at booth 412, and Caps is right behind me. I've got the Demon Bitch uh, QR codes right there with the booth number. Uh, you can find me on a link tree through Horror Taurus Studios, but you're welcome to come to my table, and here's the cards with the booth numbers on them. Uh, and Ryland? Uh, I am at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. That's R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. Uh, my parents just sort of drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it, and so now I have to spell it for you. Um, you can find my books, uh, Aberrant, Banjacks, and Suicide Jockeys in comic shops everywhere, and Fashing Origins uh, out via Dynamite very soon. Um, look for those. Uh, and um, yeah, I think that's what I got going on right now. Why don't you uh, cool. bring us home, Avalone? I am uh, easily found at davidavalonefreelance.com. Uh, the nice thing about having an unusual name that you were teased for as a kid is in the age of Google, you're the only David Avalone. Uh, so it's pretty easy to find me. I'm at booth A29, back to back with Scott downstairs. I also want to say I'm a huge fan of all three of these people, Anna Ryland, and I, I think you should check their work out and you'll love it. The issue that I had, the comic that I have out now is Elvira in Horrorland 3 is in stores. The premise of Elvira in Horrorland is that uh, all movies create their own little pocket dimensions and Elvira keeps getting trapped in the pocket dimensions of various movies. First issue was Psycho, second issue was The Shining, third issue that's out now is Alien, coming with issue four is uh, Freddy Krueger, and issue five is David Cronenberg, which will be my favorite. And uh, that's what I got going on. But thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for watching. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. Thank you. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.